0: Well, hey everybody. Uh, if I haven't said it yet, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here. I felt like sitting down today. Um, sometimes I feel like when I'm standing up, I just my body wants to be more animated than it needs to be, and so uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna sit today. You're all are sitting, so I'm just joining you, right? So uh, we are in the third Sunday of Advent, which is obviously at this point one, two, three, joy, yeah, and. During Advent, we're, we're reminding of ourselves of all of these things, we're, but we're also reminding ourselves that Jesus has arrived. Uh, Advent just means arrival, so we're reminding ourselves that he's arrived, but we're also reminding ourselves that he will arrive again, remembering that God's people, the Israelites, waited centuries and centuries and centuries for the arrival of the Messiah, and now we continue to await his return again, as we live in the meantime, in the now and the not yet. And in that meantime, we need some reminders of what it is that God is offering and what he offered. Reminders of hope, reminders of peace, reminders of love, joy, light. A few years ago, uh, I said something like Advent can feel like this line of line of a, like un one unattainable thing after another. <laughs> I would say like okay here, peace. And hope, joy—you know—it feels like you uh, to have all of them all lined up, and to consistently feel all of them. Kind of feels like finding Bigfoot, and then finding the Loch Ness monster, and then catching Saint Nick putting Christmas presents underneath the tree. Like they—they all feel very elusive because sometimes we might feel like they're imaginary. But Advent reminds us to look for hope. Peace, joy, love, and light in a real place, in the story of a real person, in the infant arrival of Jesus, and to keep looking forward to his return. And so today, we are reminding ourselves of joy. All right? So let's open our Bibles and read the scriptures. Together, as we consider joy, we're going to be in the book of Luke. It's in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you see any of those, you know that you're in the right neighborhood. If you don't have a Bible, we have physical ones out in the lobby. You're welcome to take one home with you. Otherwise, just use a digital app store. Luke 2, 6 through 12. And we have a tradition of just giving the scriptures our full attention when when we read them. And so you can do that any number of ways. Uh, You can continue to sit or you can stand with me as you are able in uh, body or spirit as I read Luke 2, starting in verse 6 through 12. Here we go. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out, Let's pray. God of every tribe, of every tongue, every color, and every nation, we thank you for the scriptures that they have persisted throughout the millennia and that we get to read them today. And I pray that whatever you have for us to learn, that it would stick, that it would become a part of the framework of our faith, that our faith would become stronger because we're becoming more like your son, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay. On our way to joy... I just want to take a few minutes to clear up a couple cultural Christmas mischaracterizations. All right? You with me? First of all, it says in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. In other words, let's clear this up. The old idea that Mary and Joseph were in a rush is not accurate. Okay? They, They weren't in a rush. Thousands of old Christmas programs have had Joseph and Mary in a hurry to find a place because she's about to pop. <laughs> but if you read it, it's clear they were already settled in Bethlehem after their journey while they were there. Secondly, it says in verse 7, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There's two things here. If I said, close your eyes and picture where Jesus was born. Some of you might picture a cave or a barn. Particularly a cave happens quite often, and why? Well, it's because the image of Jesus being born in a cave is another one of those very popular images from Christmas programs. And the idea does come from some very old writings, as early as the second century that over the centuries has continued to find its way into the way that we tell this story, but it doesn't line up or agree with the way that Luke tells this story. And then we need to understand that they were not looking for a hotel. The problem here is a mixture of translation and culture, okay? More than half of the Bibles, if you went to a store, a bookstore, and said, hey, where are your Bibles, and said, all right, I'm looking for like a, a, a smattering of 10 to 12 different translations. Half of them that you pick up, this verse would say there was no room for them in the inn. And then half of them would say for there was no guest room available to them. Um, In our modern minds, when we hear the word inn, what do we think of? Hotel. Hotel. We think of the Hampton Inn. We think of the... (laughs) We think of... The La Quinta Inn. We we think of a hotel. The the word gives us the impression that Joseph and Mary were frantically looking about trying to get a room at the Hyatt or the Marriott, right? But what's the context here? The context is Bethlehem, right? They're in Bethlehem. Why are they there? They're there because there has been a census called according to this story. They're in Bethlehem, the city of David. We know that Joseph is a descendant of David. It's called the city of David because it's the first place that King David was anointed to become king. It's a very special place in the history of the Israelites. His family is a very special family in the history of the Israelites. And Joseph, a descendant of King David, is in town with his promised wife who was pregnant. The idea that Joseph and his pregnant bride had no family to stay with or that no one would put them up is just highly unlikely so what does it mean what does the word mean even remember this story is about a census right we're just being told we're we're being told that everyone in town already has at least one guest staying with them that all the traditional guest rooms are full be like if you came to my house if someone came to my house from out of town We've got two bedrooms for the kids upstairs, two bedrooms in the basement for the kids. We have at times been like, hey, Wallace and Adley, why don't you guys bunk up so that we can give this room to someone else, okay? But then if it was more than that, it would be like, all right, and you can sleep on the couch in the basement, and you can, can sleep on the couch in the living room, and then we would be out of space for guests in our house. But in the first century, a home... In this context, what it would have is that in the back of the house, there would be this space. Sometimes it would be dug down into the ground. Sometimes it had its own entrance and exit in the back, where every night they'd bring in the animals. It's because most families didn't have a lot of livestock, they didn't even have a separate barn. And so what they would do is to protect them, to keep them warm, to keep them from being stolen, to keep them from being attacked by wolves or anything else, they would bring their small number of animals into their home in the back of their home. This is why it says that Jesus is placed in a manger, not because they were born that he was born in a cave or he was born in a barn, but because they were bunking with the animals in the same house as everyone else, which was actually very likely the house of a family member. I think that when we dig into the context of this and we understand the cultural context of what's actually being said here, that we add a bit of the joy back into the story when we know these things. What do I mean? Because Joseph and Mary and Jesus weren't alone in a cave. Joseph and Mary... We're most likely, almost assuredly, in a warm home, very likely with extended, if not immediate, family the night that Jesus was born. I think about the joy that is added when you have family there for something like a birth. I think about when Brennan was born, the joy of my dad holding my firstborn. Uh, my firstborn, the, the joy of living in, in Georgia and, and Connie, driving all the way down to hold Liam, the joy of Tim, my father-in-law, driving to Colorado to hold Wallace, the joy of all of my children getting to hold Edleria. We add joy back in the story when we think about the context and the things, and we strip away all the cultural things that we've been convinced are what's happening, and we see just a little bit more They're there. Now, a lot of these things are just details that get lost over the years because we didn't grow up in the first century. We live in a reductive society. We like to reduce a story down as much as we possibly can. We lose details. And and honestly, here's the thing. Biblical writers did the same thing to a certain extent. In our men's group on Tuesday nights, we've been going through the gospel according to Mark And almost every week, we have to point out that there's things that we don't understand unless we dig into it more, because the writers, when they were writing these Gospels, they made a lot of assumptions about what the readers would already know. They left a lot out, actually, (laughs) because they thought that the people reading it would just know all of these things naturally. For instance, here, in the book of Luke, the passage that I read, that, that even when we did the Advent moment there, so many of those verses are bouncing around this same thing. Here in the book of Luke, we see that shepherds are the first non-family members to get to meet Jesus. And maybe when we read that, we know enough about the Bible to make the connection that Jesus would be called the good shepherd, right? Right? Maybe we know enough about the Bible to make the connection that Jesus would be called the spotless Lamb of God. But when the early Christians read the book of Luke, especially if they had any connection to Judaism or that culture, they would have known immediately how scandalous it was for shepherds to be the first ones to meet the Messiah, to meet a new king. Why? Because shepherds were typically thought of as outsiders, especially to the religious and the elite. They were always dirty. They worked all hours of the night. And so people assumed they probably weren't following a whole lot of those religious laws out there with the sheep. These guys aren't your model temple goers. These guys aren't supposed to be the first people to get to meet a new king. There's a perfect example of this if you read uh, Matthew's version of this whole story. He li- leaves this part out, but he adds something else. Look, remember, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but just hang with me. Think about when the Magi go to King Herod and ask him where the new king has been born. They go to the current king because they would have assumed if anyone knew where the new king was born, it would be the current king. The Magi didn't think to go ask the shepherds because that's not how the structure worked. But the angel told the shepherds, this good news will be great joy to all the people, not just the ones up here. It's going to be good news of joy even to the outsiders because joy is available to everyone. Joy is available to everyone because Jesus is available to everyone. Now, um, I could end there. It's a nice little chunk of it. I could just say something about joy, 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 down in my heart, and button it up, right? Down in my heart, down in my heart. The joy, 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 joy. But, like a great infomercial, there's more. (laughs) There's still another layer that I want to point out, something that we miss, something that isn't obvious to us. So, So hang with me, okay? So remember... This story that we're reading, that we're in, this story is about a Savior. This story is about Jesus being born, but it's also part of the bigger story of Israel. This is something that we lose when we think of the gospel, when we think about, oh, I'm going to tell someone about Jesus. We, We do it. We strip Jesus out of the story of Israel when we talk to people about him. But when we read this, we have to remember that this is in the larger context of something that had been going on, For a very long time. It's part of the story of the Israelites. And so the angel appearing in the night sky, those of you who are well read in your scripture, just saying that is already popping other things up in your mind. And it would have popped things in the minds of early readers of this. Angels appearing in the night sky, speaking to someone, giving a message from God. It can remind us of another shepherd in another field on another night years back in this story it reminds us of the night that Jacob was running away from home fleeing for his life fleeing from his brother because he has tricked him out of his blessing he laid down in a field with his head on a rock and he had a dream about angels in the sky a lot of people call it Jacob's ladder if you read the description it's not a ladder It's a stairway. It says that God was there and he spoke to Jacob and he said, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. So think about it. Jacob has just stolen something. He's running away. He's laid his head down on the ground as a wanderer. He ends up being a shepherd. And God tells him, I'm going to give all of this to you. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, and to the east, to the north, to the south. Here's this word again. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. This Jacob, this Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the same Jacob that Isaiah prophesied about that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the same Jacob that angel, the angel mentioned when speaking to Mary, saying he will reign over the descendants of Jacob forever. The same Jacob that years later when he finally came home to face his brother, the night before he would see Esau again, afraid of what would happen. The scriptures say that he wrestled all night with God. And in the morning, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. His name became the name for all the people. The Israelites. From one God encounter to another were meant to be reminded how long they had been waiting, how long Israel had been waiting for God's promise to them to pay off. How long joy had been bottled up I just wonder if, like this whole thing, the way that we think about the Christmas story, maybe you've lost some of the details of your story too. Maybe some of those details need to be added back to give it a little joy where it belongs. And I wonder if maybe you have joy bottled up because the promise has been waiting so long. And I want to say that you're not alone. I feel this way far too often. I feel fine. I'm good. I'm good. Most of the time I feel truly content, but I hold joy at bay. And when I think of it, the truth is that I do not want to feel it for very long. Because it's like I don't believe that it will last. Because it feels like it's something that always goes away. Like something always goes wrong. It reminds me of something that um, Brene Brown wrote. She asks, why do we insist on dress rehearsing tragedy in moments of deep joy? And she answers, she says, it's because joy is the most vulnerable emotion we feel. When we feel joy, it is a place of incredible vulnerability. It is beauty and fragility and deep gratitude and impermanence all wrapped up in one. Beauty, fragility, gratitude, impermanence. Joy is difficult to fully embrace because our bodies remember the years of waiting. And we remember the moments that we felt joy leave. We remember the moments of exile. We remember the years of pain that we felt. And we tell ourselves that we don't want to feel joy because we don't want to feel it leave again. We would rather be just okay to just remember joy for a moment than to actually feel it. There's moments where I come home and my wife is delighted to see me. It's true. (laughs) Every once in a while. (laughs) And she'll just be in a great mood. And the truth is that sometimes my body does not know what to do with it. My brain says rejoice with her. Be happy with her. Delight with her and in her. Brace this moment. Live in it. the memories that my body has tells me to resist. Give her a hug, be good, be good, be even. But I think that Jesus, maybe this is Captain Obvious moment, but I think that Jesus wants us to feel joy. He wants me to feel joy. And I know this because he told me in a dream. And I want to tell you about that dream. But if you will, if you're willing to, what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes and imagine it with me. Put yourself in it. you have permission to let God shape it in the way that your imagination needs to. This was literally a few nights ago. In my dream, I was in a restaurant, and I intuitively just felt like I knew the owner. I also felt like I knew of the chef but when I sat down at the table, I knew that the server didn't know me. I felt like that was because it was a fancy restaurant, kind of place that cost a lot, five stars. The truth is, is that I was not dressed for the restaurant. So it felt as though the server assumed that I would want something simple because I was dressed simply. So they suggested something like a chicken dish. But I knew that this restaurant had my favorite dish on the menu. Now, I'd never had it there before, but that particular dish was the best thing that I had ever tasted. But that had been at a different restaurant, it felt like it had been years ago, and it felt as though nothing had ever lived up to it. Moments later, the chef comes to the table herself, and she puts in front of me a plate that had what now I, I think was one fried ravioli. It was maybe the size of a post-it note, it was brown, felt crispy in my hand, like if I snapped it, it would break, but it was full of something soft and savory. She stood there watching me as I could see myself holding it in front of me. And I, I put it to my mouth and I took one bite from the corner As I chewed and as it dissolved in my mouth, I began to weep. It lit up all of my emotions. While I was still in my mouth, with tears coming down my face, I knew that I was crying because it was better. It was the best thing that I ever tasted. And I wasn't just crying because it was good. I was crying because I had stopped believing that I would ever taste something this good again. They were tears of relief. They were tears of comfort. They were tears of delight. And I woke up feeling like they were tears of joy. And like God was telling me, there is still better. And even now with your eyes closed, I want to tell you about a word called anamnesis. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, when you do this, do this in anamnesis of me. Do this in remembrance of me. But this word remember does not mean to think of something that happened one time. An amnesis means to remember as though happening again. Remember as though present here. So here in this moment, before we begin the table, before we move to the Eucharist, if you would, just let let the Holy Spirit serve you to give you the dish you've been waiting for. To let the joy that you experienced one time, somewhere else, some time before be literally handed to you on a platter, and then accept the reality that we are the ones that have to decide whether we will take it. God, in this moment, I pray that you would convince our hearts to reach out and take, to take and to eat. I'm reminded of the prophet that was told to eat of the scroll, the scrolls that were covered in words of sorrow, but when he ate it, it tasted sweet like honey. I pray that today that we would reach out, that we would receive, that we would take, that you would convince even in our bodies, though we have memories of the sorrows and memories of the feeling of joy leaving That by your stripes we would be healed. That our knee-jerk reactions and rejections of your joy would be overcome by your work, by your beauty. That we would take and eat. And that we would never hunger again.